Welcome to Bottled Petrichor, a podcast dedicated to discussing key topics in Islamic history and thought. In addition to a short lecture at the start of most episodes, we ask our guest experts questions submitted by listeners and allow them to share their thoughts in a safe environment. Please visit our Twitter page for feedback and question submission forms. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy. I'm excited to have on today Professor Shadi Nasser. Thank you so much for being here, Professor. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, thank you so much for for having me, and I'm excited to um, uh, have this uh, uh, podcast uh, recording with you, uh, and uh, it is my pleasure. So um, uh, thanks again. You're absolutely welcome, Professor. Uh, we have quite a lot to get through today, so I'll get started right away. But before I do, do you mind telling the audience a bit about yourself, your research interests, what really got you interested in the study of you know, the Quran, the very interesting readings and stuff like this? Uh, sure. So um, currently, I am an associate professor of uh, Arabic studies uh, at uh, Near Eastern Languages and Civilization at uh, Harvard. Um, this is my uh, fourth, uh, fifth year, starting my fifth year. Um, I also uh, completed my PhD dissertation uh, in the same department in uh, 2011-12. And uh, I mostly work on um, the uh, transmission of the Quran generally in a, in a broader sense and uh, more specific on the variant readings of the Quran. Um, I also wrote my dissertation on this topic. And uh, what interested me in the topic, I have been, even before you know, starting my dissertation, I had interest in this topic, um, even back in Lebanon when uh, I was studying uh, at the American University of Beirut. Um, uh, I was interested in this topic. I was doing my own readings uh, about it uh, because mostly I was interested in the um, uh, problem of uh, inimitability of the Quran from the literary perspective, Ajaz. And uh, I got into the, the discipline of Qira'at to know what would be the influence of having, you know, this discipline or this field of variant readings and different um, renditions of the Qur'an on uh, the general theory of literary inimitability. Uh, so this is why I got into variant readings in more um, detail um, so that I would probably have, I wanted to have a better and uh, a clear idea about the theory of Ajaz from grammatical perspective. So thank you for that. You're, you're widely regarded as an expert in this field. So again, I'm very fortunate to have you on today. And you know, with that, we could just go ahead and get started. Sure. So the first question is, what do we mean when we talk about variant readings? How is the presence of such readings accounted for between Muslims and Western scholars? Um, okay, so uh, variant readings, what we call in Arabic qira'at uh, or qira'a, uh, they are um, uh, different ways of uh, reading uh, certain words in the Quran or even certain phrases. Um, they are um, uh, there are different reasons why we have variant readings. We will get to this, uh, I think, um, you know, later on. Um, but if we want to talk about the differences between Western scholarship slash Muslim scholarship uh, on that, um, I would generally, generally, again, there are many exceptions, you know, to that. But let's say generally Muslim scholarship would regard uh, variant readings or qira'at uh, to be uh, part of the uh, revelation. Um, 
and whether they were seven, whether they are seven readings, ten readings, etc. Again, we will get to this uh, later on. Uh, they are considered to be part of the revelation. Um, generally speaking, in uh, Western scholarship, uh, they uh, do not regard those readings as part of revelation, and uh, they uh, attribute to this phenomena of variations. Uh, to several, uh, to, to different reasons, whether they are textual reasons, errors in transmission, textual criticism, etc. Um, so we have words in the Quran, many words, uh, expressions, way of recitation uh, that are different uh, from one style to another or from one reading to another. And this is generally speaking what, um, what the discipline of qira'at or variant readings um, is. Thank you. When did people... When did Muslims first start documenting these are very reading? Okay, so uh, so documentation, rea realizing that there are variant readings uh, was very early on. So um, um, if we examine um, hadiths, prophetic traditions, um, we find that uh, they are the 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 phenomena of of uh, the existence of variant readings or recitations in different styles or different manners, they, it existed very early on. Um, how early, you know, we don't know, but it's early. Um, and documenting it is a different, um, it's a different thing. A documentation, generally, whether it's variant readings or, or Arabic sciences or Islamic sciences uh, in general, of course, um, it was at a, at a later stage. Uh, when it comes to uh, qira'at or variant readings, we do know from sources that scholars probably by the second century um, Islamic calendar, so let's say 200s, so that would be 800s, uh, around the 800s, uh, mid 9th century, uh, they started writing manuals, compilations of different qira'at or different um, uh, variant readings. Um, we do have uh, the first um, complete manual about you know, the systems, the seven systems of qira'at is attributed to Ibn Mujahid. Um, I will talk about him also later. And he died in 324, so that would be 936, so 10th century. So that's the first complete, full-fledged manual of uh, detailed documentation of Qira'at. Before Ibn Mujahid, there were many manuals and, manu and many books that documented Qira'at. Uh, we lost many of those manuals. Um, some of them uh, survived in later manuals. Um, so, again, if we want to take it from a historical perspective, I would say the 800s, let's say, around 800s, 9th century, we started to have uh, uh, the discipline of Qira'at as an academic discipline uh, started to attract uh, scholars um, who were uh, very keen on documenting uh, various readings. Add to that also that the grammarians of the uh, 800s uh, were also interested in qira'at or variant readings. So we also find many, many, um, uh, uh, a lot of data in, in early works of grammar, like Zajjaj or, or Farra' Ma'an al-Qur'an, for example, uh, who documented also uh, different readings of the, of the Qur'an. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So we have um, a number of canonical and widely accepted variant readings of the Qur'an. 
Mm-hmm. And you've, you kind of just touched upon this. So how and when were these variant readings canonized? I know Ibn Mujah is involved. And really right. what methodology was applied to determine whether a variant reading was valid or not? Sure. Okay, so this is a, a very complicated <laughs> question. Not complicated, just the answer would be long. And it's it's mostly the topic of my uh, dissertation slash uh, first book and, you know, the topic also of the second book. Um, so let's say that the, um, um, uh, the main, um, I would say the mainstream point of view in the Islamic tradition, uh, as I said earlier, that the Qira'at are, or the variant readings, let's talk about now the seven, the canonical, uh, the standard. So they are divine, they are revelation um, uh, in their entirety, okay? Now, um, when we examine the tradition, when we examine the sources, uh, we do not find that um, uh, we do not find that this this uh, idea or this attitude or this conception of qiraat uh, was adopted uh, by uh, by all scholars. Okay, um, and this is why. I was interested in pursuing this topic to see when was the idea of considering the seven qira'at or the ten qira'at to be divine revelation, to be part of, of revelation. And it happened to be that this, this concept was later and it was not it was not an early concept. Because if we examine the opinions of early scholars, including Ibn Mujahid, including you know people like Tabari, including people like Zamakhshari, including uh, Ibn Atiyah, all these great exegetes, um, and we read uh, their comments and their and their exegesis about some variant readings which belong to what we know now as canonical readings, we do see that they criticized uh, many of these readings. Um, some readings were criticized, many readings were criticized, so, you know, we don't have a percentage of that, but the, I, but the notion that all the readings uh, were uh, divine or were um, uh, authentic, you know, um, going back to the Prophet, it's not an idea that was adopted by, by early scholars. Um, so this is why, you know, we have to uh, start with the, the with the person who started this, this discipline, who was Ibn Mujahid, uh, the whole concept of the seven readings. And what happened with Ibn Mujahid, he chose out of many uh, system readings, or what we call eponymous reading. An eponymous reading is a reading that goes back to an, an eponym, a person. We attribute this reading to him. So we say the reading of Asim, that's an eponymous reading. Um, so he collected out of different eponymous readings or system readings which were circulating um, in different uh, cities in the Islamic world, and he collected seven. And he did not say that those seven are canonical, you know, um, but later on the Islamic tradition or the tradition of Qira'at uh, started to rely on those seven readings. Uh, people opposed the selection of seven, other people agreed to it. Um, but since that time, um, we started to have um, more focus on what we now what we now call the seven readings. And, and this is, again, the period of the 300s, mid-4th century Islamic calendar, so that would be 10th century. So th- since this period and onward, 
we started to have this notion of certain readings being standard or canonical and other readings are not. And this, again, before Ibn Mujahid, if we read books of grammar, books of uh, exegesis, um, books on ulum al-Qur'an in general, not ulum al-Qur'an, but things related to Qur'an, uh, we do see that Muslim scholars um, considered what we now call irregular readings or anomalous shawav uh, to be valid readings. Okay, So this process of, of considering a reading to be canonical and a reading to be not canonical, it took a long time to crystallize. And it wasn't, you know, um, a static uh, concept or idea um, that can easily be found in the Islamic tradition. So again, to, to summarize, this the notion of canonical or what we call mutawatir, maybe I will talk about that later, divine revelation, it's a later idea um, that cannot be traced back to, to early Muslims. Um, now, does that mean that early Muslims didn't think that those readings were revelation? No, they of course thought that the seven readings or the ten readings or different readings, that they were more or less revelation. But is it all of them were revelation or uh, parts of them? Is there a room for rejecting or accepting a reading uh, based on you know certain criteria? Yes. Um, however, the notion that the whole system reading, the whole eponymous reading is divine revelation from beginning to end in all its individual variants, in all its principles of recitation, what we call tajweed, that it's divine revelation, that's a later idea that was not adopted by early Muslim scholars. So thank you for that. And you mentioned that Ibn Mujahid is kind of central in this whole canonization um, uh, project. Yeah. But before Ibn Mujahid, was there any attempt at canonizing the variant readings, was there was there a disagreement among scholars contemporaneous with and after Ibn Mujahid with regard to his choice for the canonization? I know we touched upon this earlier. Sure, sure. So so let's first uh, you know clarify what what we mean by by canonize, right? So canonize, um, uh, generally speaking, in this context, we are choosing out of a corpus, okay, of readings, we are selecting um, a smaller corpus. From that bigger corpus and consider it to be to be standard or to be canonical, right? And then what we deselect um, is by default is going to be decanonized or considered to be anomalous or irregular, right? Um, so the attempts before Ibn Mujahid, I would say that they were more comprehensive uh, rather than selective. So when someone like a Tabari uh, who was you know who you know who died you know 10 15 years before ibn mujahid right uh, there are, there are reports that ibn mujahid studied with al-tabari but they are not uh, i i don't think they are correct um, but let's say that they were in the same time period so al-tabari wrote um, a manual of qiraat on 20 uh, variant readings, right? 20 eponymous readings. Uh, we also have um, uh, manuals before uh, al-tabari uh, and, you know, let's say 50, 60 years before on 25 uh, eponymous readings, right? Now, whether these attempts were canonization in a sense that choosing 20 or 25 out of so many, I cannot 
No, because we don't have those books, right? And we don't know exactly how many variant readings or system readings were circulating back in the time. Uh, however, with the with the um, with Ibn Mujahid, it's different. It is obvious that he is choosing from a broader corpus. He is choosing seven out of so many. And people during his time and and later they objected to him selecting seven only. Um, for for hundreds of years, people were criticizing him. Why did you choose seven out of so many uh, other readings, which were also authentic, which were uh, valid, uh, which were even stronger or better than the seven or some of the seven readings that he chose? Okay, so that's what you know. When we talk about canonize, it means you know selecting a corpus, making it. Uh, systematic, making it canonical, and the uh, other corpus, uh, which you did not include, uh, you are considering it by default to be uh, not standard. So before Ibn Mujahid, where there we didn't, we don't, we didn't have any um, uh, manual uh, that says, um, you know, uh, you know, there is an attempt to only select a few readings out of a larger corpus. Um, you may now and then find in bibliographical information some manuals or books uh, which say well you know al qira you know you know qira, uh, the five readings of the of the amsar or al qiraat al-sab'a or etc whether they were authentic or not it's something that you know we cannot um, um, we cannot confirm uh, so we would say that Ibn Mujahid um, also add to that that even after Ibn Mujahid, people were always referring to his work as the starting point. So this is also another reason why we start with Ibn Mujahid as you know the person who was who is the founder of this of the seven readings and what people called him later on Musabba Saba. He is the one who founded the seven. Um, so that's you know how I think why he was uh, the first and. Uh, I, I don't like also to say, you know, someone or something is the first because I think there is always a group effort, you know, in these things. So I would say if he's not the first, he was among the first people who tried to create a canon, um, a selected canon out of a larger corpus um, of uh, variant readings that were circulating uh, during that time. Thank you. And what factors led to this um, limiting to seven and, and this canonization? to gain widespread acceptance. Okay, so um, so I think even before Ibn Mujahid, we can read that also in At-Tabari, uh, in his tafsir, in his exegesis. We can also read that in the early works of grammarians, uh, especially Farra, uh, from whom At-Tabari uh, benefited greatly. Zajjaj um, also, Al-Akhfash, you know, these early grammarians, we do read in their um, in their works that uh, adhering to the consonantal text of what we call the Uthmanic consonantal text of Arabic is very important and crucial, which means that um, if you have a copy of the Quran which deviates in its consonantal outline. Consonantal outline means, you know, the, the letters themselves, okay? So the, the, the text itself, it did the consonants, it, they de it deviates from the version that Uthman created, okay? Um, um, in, let's say, around 40 Hijri, okay? Uh, so that would be seventh century, around seventh century. Um, so then, uh, we consider this reading to be shadha, irregular. So they were very, very 
adamant on adhering to the consonantal text. Um, so that's a very important criteria. So starting 200, starting 800s, around 800s AD, um, 9th century, early 9th century, to adhere to the Rasm. A second criteria would be um, Arabic grammar. Okay, so the reading should first adhere to the Rasm, to the, to the uh, consonantal outline, and it should be grammatical, um, meaning that it should... Uh, not violate the rules of eloquence or uh, proper Arabia or pro proper Arabic grammar. Now, this one is a little bit, you know, people who studied Arabic grammar know that, you know, you can say whatever you want, some more or less in Arabic, and then you can find a solution for it. You know, um, we are not talking just about one school of grammar. We're talking about the different opinions of grammarians about how you justify um, a certain, you know, uh, uh, grammatical anomaly. So, you know, a, a quick example, anyone who reads, let's say, Al-Fatiha, right? And then now we say Alhamdulillahi, right? With a dhamma on Alhamdul, and people say, oh, this is a subject. But then you go to, to early works of Qiraat, and you find that, you know, many people read Alhamda with a Fatha on the Dal, and other people read Alhamdi with a Kasra on the Dal. And they would say, well, this is grammatically not as strong as alhamdu with, you know, nominative. Uh, however, there is a grammatical justification for that. So, you know, the point is, if you are out of grammatical explanation, whether, you know, this specific reading doesn't adhere to any dialectal, you know, dialect of, of some Arabic tribe in Arabia, or um, uh, you, you make a trick, a grammatical trick to justify it, uh, then you know, you should reject this reading as not being um, uh, sound or correct. Um, a third, uh, you know, criterion, which is uh, what, what, which, what I called, you know, in, in my book, is a criterion that changed over time. So early on, they were keen on having a kind of consensus or ijma on a certain reading. So a reading... A certain Quranic reading would be popular in a certain uh, city and uh, people have a certain consensus, a consensus, let's say not the consensus, that the majority of people in this specific region, they are reading uh, in this specific way. Um, it seems that this kind of uh, this, this condition or this criterion changed, um, not necessarily replaced, but uh, what overruled it is the idea of having a sound chain of transmission. And this is what I called, you know, making the qira'ah or making qira'ah similar to hadith, prophetic tradition. So you need a sound chain of transmission for a qira'ah to be sound. And they let go of the condition of uh, tawatur or ijma' because it's something that you cannot prove. However, what you can prove is if you have a sound chain of transmission. So, again, um, adhering to the consonantal script the, of, the, of the Quran, uh, Arabic grammar, so it has to, uh, to uh, follow the rules of Arabic grammar. And three, uh, early on it was ijma'ah. There was no such thing as tawatur early on, uh, but let's say a, an ijma'ah, a consensus. Uh, later on it became a sound a chain of transmission that connects all the readers who transmitted, um, you know, this specific tira or variant or, or eponymous reading.
Understood. And I think just before we move on, it's it's probably important to ask. And I know we're going to touch yeah. uh, these different criteria throughout this episode, but I should probably ask. So when we first talk about the, the continental skeleton, mm-hmm. was there one uniform continental skeleton that everyone is referring to? Or were there multiple uh, continental skeletons that could possibly have been used? So they were, there were, right? So the, you know, you know, we we know that again from the tradition of uh, of Qiraat. Uh, now, according to the uh, account we have about the collection of the Quran, I'm not going to go into detail about it. But when when Uthman formed the committee and they copied um, uh, the uh, the sheets of Hafsa, you know, into the first codex, uh, they made copies. Okay. Now, it doesn't tell us, you know, the account, you know, they don't say that they made different copies. They made copies of that, you know, uh, uh, first, you know, if you want the, the, the parent text, and they send it to different cities, to different, you know, um, uh, capitals of the Islamic world. And the number varies. So we have so many different traditions uh, about the number. Were they five? I, you know, there was someone who made a, a study of all these accounts um, in the introduction of Kitab al-Muqna by Dani, the editor. And I think she uh, collected all these accounts and there, the, the number of codices or the number of copies which were sent were either five or seven or eight, nine. I think it goes to 11. OK, um, now we, of course, discover from the discipline of variant readings and early works um, or by Muslim scholars that they, there are actually uh, textual differences between those copies. So those copies were not uniform. Uh, there were, but however, the arrangement and the syntax, you know, and, you know, in, in itself is the same. So all these different uh, copies, they are actually, it is one copy. It is one Quran, but they are copied uh, by, they were copied and sent, you know, to these different um, uh, cities. However, there are some differences in them. Uh, now, in the tradition, these differences became part of the Qira'a, became part of the um, of the variant reading. So you would have in one, let's say in the Meccan Codex, you would have uh, a preposition which is dropped, you know, amin, let's say, which is dropped from the uh, from the verse, and then this becomes a Qira'a that you know for a certain for a wisdom that we are not aware of, they chose to drop this min uh, from the Meccan Codex. Um, that being said, there are, of course, other Muslim scholars who said, no, they were scribal errors. Ibn Khaldun, for example, if you read in his Muqaddimah, he tells you that the different, the textual differences we have uh, in these codices are scribal errors. You can't just attribute them to, you know, divine revelation, especially that when these, you know, textual uh, differences between the codices are obvious scribal mistakes, uh, you know, wow, fa, min, propositions, uh, alifs, you know, all these things that when people are copying, they were, you know, they, they uh, naturally, you know, drop or add. Uh, however, these textual differences, the prepositions, the conjunctions, um, uh, they became part of the Qira'a. So if you, uh, up un- until today, so you listen, you know, to a, um, you know, the Meccan reading, let's say in Surah At-Tawbah, Jannat and Tajri, Tahtaha Al-Anhar, and then you have Jannat and Tajri, Min Tahtiha Al-Anhar, you, you listen to, uh, you know, the Meccan reading, or even, you know, you open the Meccan Codex, and you open any of the other six, you know, codices, 
uh, or listen to them, and then you would find a men here, and then you will not find a men there. And it still exists today in um, in our recitation. Yeah. Understood. Thank you. And I think we're going to touch upon this again later on when we talk about kind of the, the theological elements um, with regard to the divine protection of the Quran. But kind of uh, just briefly before we move on, when it comes to Arabic, um, it's commonly held that the Quran kind of informs Arabic. Mm-hmm. And so if, for example, there is a transmission of one reading, which, you know, goes against, quote unquote, you know, proper Arabic, mm-hmm. and yet Arabic also is said to derive from kind of the Quran. So how mm-hmm. is this how is this reconciled? Okay, excellent question. Uh, this is a very, very, you know, important question and also in our in our perception or or how we were made, you know, aware of, you know, the role of Arabic and the role of Quran and which one influences the other. Do we use the rules of Arabic grammar to read the Quran or does the Quran dictate the rules of Arabic grammar, right? And uh, again, early period and later period. It's very important. I mean, I it's very important to, to realize that, you know, Muslims did not hold the same views over the past 1400 years, um, which is great. You don't want to be static, right? And early on, uh, Muslim scholars, grammarians, exegetes, they were using Arabic grammar uh, in how they understood Arabic grammar based on pre-Islamic poetry, based on early corpus of Arabic literature to read the Quran. And if there are certain uh, verses or certain expressions in the Quran which are not grammatical, and it's very obvious to anyone who goes to these early works and reads some of the um, problematic, you know, grammatical um, uh, uh, phrases or verses in the Quran that they were struggling with this. Like, this is not good Arabic. How are we going to, um, how are we going to uh, harmonize, you know, the rules of fasaha or eloquence in Arabic with, you know, these expressions in the Quran. Um, and therefore, many of the early scholars, um, especially grammarians, they rejected a lot of those readings of the variant different because variant readings again they it's not it's not dialects there are many variant readings uh, which have to do with uh, reading words in the Quran with different case endings which means different you know syntactical arrangement of of certain words and many grammarians including Sibaway who you know rejected many of these readings based on Arabic grammar Arabic grammar does not dictate that we read this in the mansub or in the accusative we should read it you know in that way um, however, when the whole notion of the of the readings of the Quran, um, the seven readings, the ten readings, uh, and even the Quran being, of course, the uh, uh, ultimate uh, manifestation of eloquence and balagha and pasaha, uh, theologians, you know, you know, get got into the uh, the fray and they and and they started, you know, promulgating the idea that. Uh, the Quran dictates Arabic grammar. So even if there's something, you know, that you think is not grammatical, uh, it should be grammatical because it is the Quran. And many statements, uh, you know, especially post, I would say, 6th century, 5th, 6th century, I would say 6th century, Hijri. So let's say maybe 11th century, 12th century AD, uh, that you would often read in the works of, you know, those theologians or uh, Muslim scholars in general, that we don't heed the opinions of those grammarians like Sibawai or Abu Ali al-Farisi or al-Khalil, etc. You know, they 
are grammarians, but we have the Quran. We uh, received uh, its recitation from the Prophet, and it must be true, right? Um, so again, this this um, uh, I want to call it you know recipro reciprocal you know relationship between the Quran and the Arabic grammar is very complicated. It's like the egg and the chicken, you know, in a sense. Uh, do we use Arabic rules of Arabic grammar to read the Quran, or do we use the Quran? you know, to modify uh, the rules of Arabic grammar. And it's it's very difficult, especially when our corpus of of, of, of early Arabic literature, literature, I'm, I'm, I'm including Quran under literature in the sense that it's a literary document, um, that the earliest we have is the Quran and pre-Islamic poetry. Both of them are very similar, you know, in, in syntax and vocabulary, etc. Um, so that's... Um, uh, that's you know a kind of dilemma uh, in in that in that regard. And again, scholars, um, with respect to their, I would say, with respect to their um, uh, affiliation, whether you are a grammarian, whether you are an exegete, whether you are a theologian, you would you know advance and adopt a different view based on what you think is most suitable for your discipline. Uh, so you read the Tabari. You read the Zamakhshari, you read Ibn Atiyah, they were exegetes, and then you clearly find them opposing many of those, you know, not when I say canonical reading, it doesn't mean the whole reading, okay? I'm just talking about many of the individual variant readings which belong to a, a bigger system of a canonical reading. So, and then you would find uh, statements by, by them saying this is not grammatical, this is against eloquence, uh, this reader didn't know what he was doing. Um, uh, however, all su such opinions disappeared later on. You would not, you would never find um, an exegete post sixth century who would criticize uh, Hamza Zayat or Ibn Amr, um, you know, or Ibn Kathir or or Qumbul, All these readers, they all just became. You have to take the entirety of the uh, of the reading with all its individual um, uh, readings. Uh, whether they make sense or not grammatically, and then you have to justify them, um, because they, this is the um, this is your standard. Your standard is the Quran, and from the Quran you make Arabic grammar, and not the the other way around. For the some of the early exegetes, for them they had they already had a, a clear idea what Arabic grammar should be, and this is why they rejected um, uh, several readings based on the standard. Understood. Thank you for that. Um, yeah. How was the Quran defined between different people? And how were variant readings used in different fields like law or theology? Okay. Um, so uh, that's, you know, one of the uh, one of the problems, you know, that, you know, I was facing when I when I was working on this is, uh, you know, exactly this, this question is, uh, you know, how did uh, Muslims define the Quran, and then you would you would say, oh, well, this is easy. It's the Quran. Everyone knows it, right? But it doesn't work this way in academic disciplines. For I mean, in in for Muslim scholars in that in that sense, because you need to have a very clear definition of you know of of a concept, uh, so that you build on that. Um, and you know, many of the uh, what we, what what I'm calling like usulis, you know, people who wrote in in, in works of usul al um, they attempted to define the Quran as, and there were many attempts. And then one 
one author of Usul al-Fiqh would add something to the definition because they realize that there's something missing. So someone would say, well, the Quran is the uh, revealed uh, speech that the Prophet received. And then another Usuli would say, well, does that mean that you know, prophetic tradition is not revealed, it is also revealed. So let's add another parameter to the definition. We call it the revealed, inimitable, you know, speech that the prophet received um, to distinguish it, you know, from the prophetic tradition, which is revealed, but it's not inimitable. It's not mojiz. And then a third scholar would say, well, okay, but the, um, the prophet also received uh, many uh, Quran, which has with many verses of the Quran or portions of the Quran, which was which was abrogated, it was you know taken out according to tradition. So how do we recognize between that which was abrogated and that which was not? And I'm talking here about abrogation that was completely taken out of the text. I'm not talking about just legal abrogation. And then scholars said, okay, well then we define it by this, you know, mu'jiz, inimitable. Um, a revelation to the prophet, which is in Arabic. Again, they added Arabic to distinguish it between from other revealed books. You know the uh, you know the books of the Jews and the Christians, the way they they call it, and which is collected between the two covers. And that was the important uh, you know parameter uh, between the two covers, which is Mabayn al-Dafatain in Arabic, uh, which means that which which is collected between the two covers. Uh, in Arabic, revealed to the Prophet, um, collected, you know, by by Uthman and you know the majority of uh, Muslims uh, agreed upon, is the Quran. Okay, so this is how, uh, let's say, the definition uh, crystallized uh, later on, and this is you know very smart and very um, uh, detailed because in this way you are going to exclude all the what we call anomalous readings, all the different codices by the companions, uh, uh, which, you know, people agree that they were revelations, but then they were abrogated later on. Um, so the reason why companions, um, some companions disagreed with uh, the collection of, of Osman, they said, well, I have a codex and I received the Quran directly from the Prophet. Why are we choosing your codex or your version over my version? And then the answer to that is, well, your version was abrogated, and then we are following this version. So by putting this definition, which is between the two covers, as what we call Mus'haf al-Imam, which is the main, um, the, the, uh, the main codex, uh, they excluded anything outside you know, the text of the Qur'an. And outside the text of the the physical, the the paper, you know, the, the um, of uh, of the text. Um, so therefore, and you know, back to the point that we made earlier about variant readings. Any variant reading uh, that deviated uh, from this consonantal text is readily considered not to be Quran. Yes, we can use it in. Um, in tafsir and exegesis, we can use it in fiqh, you know, uh, you know, if you look at, uh, let's say, Hanafi fiqh, they would still, uh, they would still use, you know, the irregular or the anomalous reading of Ibn Mas'ud in many uh, uh, legal verdicts, okay? Uh, so it's a kind of saying, okay, well, it, 
there must be some kind of divinity or there must be some kind of authority, you know, for this abrogated verse. It's abrogated. We don't use it in liturgical practices. We should not recite the Quran using it. We should not pray using, you know, those readings. However, we can use it for legal justification. Um, for grammar also, it is, you know, used. And this is why, despite the fact that, um, you know, we have, uh, you know, those readings outside the two covers, uh, were rejected by Muslims um, as being Quran or no longer Quran to be more accurate. They were Quran at a certain point. Okay. And that's what Al-Baqillani tells you very clearly. They were Quran. They might have been Quran at a certain point, but then the consensus of the Ummah or the companions, it abrogated this. And therefore, we only stick to what we have between the two covers. Um, so most uh, disciplines within the Islamic sciences, uh, theology, fiqh, you know, grammar, Arabic sciences, uh, tafsir, you know, and this is why we have lots, a lot, a lot of, of variant readings and, you know, whether anomalous or canonical uh, in the books of tafsir because they use it. They want to use as many variant readings as possible to try to interpret the verses uh, correctly. The more, the better. They always wanted more. They never wanted less. Understood. Thank you so much for that. So what are the Ahraf? Okay, so um, <laughs> no one knows. That's the short answer. Uh, so the Ahraf, uh, I would say, you know, according to the Hadith, the Quran was revealed according to uh, seven Ahraf. Okay. And in one, in one Hadith, <clears throat> which deviates from that, says like Thalath Ahraf, so three. Um, and uh, you know, if you open any book on uh, Qira'at or on Ulum al-Qur'an and then you try to understand what is meant by Ahruf, uh, we have so many different opinions. And, you know, as I mentioned before, uh, in, you know, in, in my articles and the things I wrote is that there are more than 30 interpretation of the meaning of harf. No one really knows. Okay. Um, however, what, what we know is that this hadith is the only, again, the only legitimate uh, way of justifying the existence of variant readings. If you don't have this hadith, there's no justification whatsoever for the phenomenon of variant readings of the Quran. Um, and um, uh, meaning that uh, why do we have, let's say, early accounts from the time of the Prophet that he was reading in different ways? Uh, we don't. Uh, do we have uh, accounts that he was reading, you know, in according to the system and then he suddenly shifted to that system? We don't. Uh, the only uh, justification of the existence of variant is this hadith in, in its different, you know, um, uh, variations. Uh, you know, two companions, uh, you know, they were in the mosque, they were praying. One companion heard the other reciting the same verse of the Quran, different from the way he memorized it. You know, he took the other companion to the Prophet and he told him, you know, you taught me this verse differently. Look at how he's reciting. The Prophet told them both to recite the same verse. They recited. The Prophet said, well, uh, this is how it was revealed. And for the other companion, yes, this is how it was revealed. The Quran was revealed in seven different Ahruf. So the translation or our understanding of Harf, you know, usually we say it's a mode. Um, uh, different scholars try to, you know, say, well, the seven, the Ahruf, um, you know, uh, all the variant readings we have now is just one Harf and the six other Ahruf, they were abrogated. 
um, uh, there are different opinions on the matter. Other people even didn't, uh, you know, take the meaning of harf to be related to qiraat whatsoever. And they said that sabat uh, ahraf, it means, you know, zahir, batin, amr, nahi, you know, this, you know, uh, uh, prohibition, command, um, uh, uh, the esoteric meaning, the exoteric meaning of the Quran. So even some scholars took that to completely uh, another direction. Um, so in some, um, we don't have any uh, clear evidence of what harf means, I'm saying from the Islamic tradition. The only thing we are sure of is that this hadith justifies the existence of uh, variations and variants in the Quran. Uh, some people and some, I wouldn't say scholars, because scholars wouldn't do that, but, you know, let's say the lay people, uh, lay not in the meaning of not educated, but they are not educated in those in the science of Qira'at. Uh, they equated uh, the seven Qira'at, the seven variant readings, to the seven Ahruf, and this is rejected by most scholars. Uh, it's just, you know, a coincidence that the seven Ahruf are equated to the seven uh, readings. And this is why many scholars criticized Ibn Mujahid for choosing seven. They said by him choosing seven, he created this kind of doubt or shubha uh, that would make people think that the hadith of Sabat Ahruf um, meant the seven uh, eponymous readings or the canonical readings, which are not. Thank you. And, and to be clear, the, the hadith justifies the presence of variant readings, but does not exactly mean that those variant readings are the are the seven ahr. The hadith, the hadith. I mean, by justification, it means it's a, it's a, it's the only legitimate way to justify that you can read the Quran in different ways, right? Because if you don't have this hadith, you have you have also other other hadith or other group uh, of uh, of Muslim scholars who don't like the idea of variant readings, and they say, well, al Quran wahid. It means the Quran is one and it was revealed by the one. This whole notion of variant readings, you know, it's nonsense for some of them. Um, so therefore, how do you justify the existence of variant readings, especially when we are not talking about variations that have to do with dialect? We are talking about variations that sometimes change the meaning, uh, variations that you know, it's very theological in a sense. If you want to say, well, the Quran is the is the uh, speech of, of God or the word of God, Kalamullah. So, you know, does God speak in variations and in variants? That's a very, you know, complex and, um, uh, you know, intertwined theological um, um, uh, problem. Uh, therefore, how do you um justify or how do you make the existence of variants legitimate is you have this hadith and this hadith when when the prophet uh, says that you can read the quran in this way or in that way it doesn't tell us the hadith what were the variations we only you know we can guess uh, but then it became a legitimate way uh, or it became a way to make the variant readings legitimate instead of people uh, saying oh well those variant readings uh, are just mistakes or uh, they were, uh, you know, um, uh, they were created uh, by the Quran reciters and we, they can't be traced back to the Prophet. So that's what I mean by making them legitimate or legitimize. Uh, 
in a sense that uh, you need a uh, prophetic tradition. We don't have anything in the Quran that tells you that you can read the Quran in seven ways or in ten ways or in different ways. But you have a hadith which tells you that variations are possible and you can read the Quran in different uh, ways. Now, where those seven or ten, uh, what the Prophet meant, we don't know. But the Islamic tradition assumes so, since those seven or ten readings, or what we call the canonical readings, uh, are um, traced back to the Prophet, according to the chains of transmission documented in the sources. Understood. And kind of just to, to, to stay here for a bit, sure. is it surprising at all that there is this, or a number of hadith, which talk about the various ahruf, and yet, despite its importance, or you know, I'm assuming it was an important uh, kind of concept and topic, no one really knows what ahruf means. Um, and so it, 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 does, it kind of seems as if there were these variant readings kind of around. Mm-hmm. And then now you have um, a hadith, which kind of justifies it. Mm-hmm. But it's so ambiguous, there's just no way to know what we mean by ahruf, but we still use it to justify their presence. I mean, mm-hmm. is that surprising at all? Um, not at all. I mean, uh, it's not surprising because, you know, we do have many, I mean, one of the problems is, um, you know, this kind of, uh, you know, kind of historical linguistics. What what I mean by that is, is the word harf, was the word harf for the time, in the time of the prophet, was it clear, you know, for the early Muslims or was it um, ambiguous? Okay, so what I mean by that is late when later Muslims for, you know, let's say, you, you know, when you read even, you know, Hadith or the Sira, you would find in many places, sometimes they are glossing certain words. I'm just talking about pure, you know, lexical words here, you know, a certain word, they would gloss it. Uh, and that, this is, you know, scholars in the in the ninth century or eighth century. So they are glossing a word um, for their audience which means that this specific word was understood 200 years you know, earlier. But then for the audience, let's say, of the ninth century, uh, they don't know the meaning of this word. And then the narrator had to gloss it. And I would say, you know, for the word, for the uh, term harf, if we believe that this hadith is not fabricated and it really comes from the Prophet, and the Prophet really said that the Qur'an was revealed in three or in seven ahruf, um, the question is, was the, the term harf ambiguous uh, for the people back then? Or it became ambiguous to us, or to the people 200 or 300 years later on? So this needs, you know, more investigation in the sense of the, uh, the nuances of the term harf. Now we know that, let's say, you know, from many accounts in the second century, so I would say, you know, eight, 8th century, late 700s, uh, that when you say, well, someone read according to the harf of Ibn Mas'ud, this is clear, harf Ibn Mas'ud, it means the qira'a of Ibn Mas'ud. So it's a synonymous uh, to qira'a in this specific uh, uh, context. However, when you say that the Qur'an unzila ala sab'at ahruf, that the Qur'an was revealed in seven variant readings, that doesn't make a lot of sense, uh, especially when we find that, you know, there are more than seven readings uh, and there are, 
and some people said, well, the maximum number you could have for one word is seven, sabat, you know, awjuh, which is not correct because there are words um, read in more than seven. Sometimes there are words which are read in 10 or 12 or 13, you know, different ways. Um, and this is, again, this is why many scholars, early scholars, they tried to understand what is meant by harf. They have different scenarios for that. Uh, Ibn Qutayba, Al-Baqillani, Al-Tabari, um, they, they, they try to say, well, it's seven dialects. The word cannot have more than sabat um, awjuh. Uh, um, and this is why where the confusion is. So again, um, uh, it's, it's surprising and not surprising in a sense. Well, it is surprising that if you want to make things clear, so you should, you know, explain what is meant by harf. However, it's not surprising uh, because many of the terms that were used in that period, uh, do we really understand what they really meant? And this is this goes the same with the Quran. There are many words or vocabulary in the Quran, uh, which we call gharib or ambiguous, uh, that scholars until today, they don't know exactly what they mean. Um, and this is why you have different interpretations for them. Um, so from a historical perspective, it's not surprising if we assume that what they meant by harf back then is different from our understanding of harf. However, if it's the same, that harf is a qira'a, well, that's a little bit, you know, problematic because um, saying in one hadith that it's three ahruf and saying in another hadith it's seven, and then knowing that, you know, what exactly is meant by harf uh, is unknown, that's something that puzzled Muslim scholars. And again, they would give you different interpretations and different opinions. And at the end, they would end by, Wallahu a'lam, we, you know, God knows best. Thank you. And and in your opinion, what is the most likely meaning um, of this tradition? Uh, I, I, I really don't have a, a strong opinion about, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, the specific meaning of, of harf and that. And I would probably, um, you know, align myself with the group you know, that would say, well, seven just mean multiple readings, not necessarily seven. Um, but again, that's just, um, you know, it's not based on, you know, on evidence. It's just based on probably the general understanding of the hadith, um, you know, or this, you know, specific statement. Um, and um, yeah, so I, I'm not... Uh, it's very difficult to to really have a strong opinion about this because uh, just all scenarios are possible. There are scenarios that you can readily exclude because they don't make sense uh, based on data. You say, well, seven dialects, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, when you say that, you know, they are, well, sure, you can say seven ahruf means, uh, as we said, you know, al-amr wal-nahi, um, you know, wal-zahir wal-batin ila akhirihi. Sure, that's, you know, a, a philosophical, uh, you know, slash esoteric interpretation. You can't be right or wrong here. Uh, but the problem is uh, when the context of this hadith uh, is um, is basically the um, uh, dispute between two companions on how to read, right? And this is why many people would exclude, you know, the specific uh, meaning that the hadith has nothing to do with variant readings. Uh, and it has to do with esoteric interpretation of the Quran, that the Quran has seven layers of meanings, because the context of the hadith is about, um, you know, variant way of recitation. 
Um, so, so yeah, so I would, you know, uh, for me, the, the most important, what I'm mostly interested in is why the hadith was circulated uh, rather than what it really means. And for me, the most important, you know, bit of it is that it is used uh, to legitimize variant readings. And that's for me the what what is important. Whether what exactly harf meant, uh, you know, it's like tawqif, You know, we, we really don't know. Uh, and then we, ju- we just we leave it until you know something comes up. Um, you know, new sources, a new interpretation, uh, something that you know um, uh, may come from you know that period of the first century that would shed more light on the meaning of harf. Uh, but as far as I am concerned. Uh, for me, the hadith is just a way to um, make the tradition or the existence of variant readings uh, legitimate uh, by the Prophet himself. So that's what mostly concerns me. Understood. Thank you for that. Yeah. So what do we mean when we talk about Tawata? How does this apply to the Quran and its mm-hmm. transmission? Okay, so, um, so Tawatur uh, means... Um, that you have a piece of information, an account or something um, that has been transmitted by so many people uh, who come from different backgrounds, who come uh, from um, uh, different times, uh, who cannot collude on error. You know, know, this this piece of information or this news or this thing that they are transmitting, um, it is so common and it's so obvious that it is impossible for this large group of people to conspire, okay, and collude on, on error. And that's the technical definition of tawatur, which translates to it's something that is so obvious, it's something that is so true, it's something that cannot be disputed, okay? So it's like saying, well, you know, the sun rises from the east. That's Tawatur. Everyone knows that. Um, you know, even a young boy or girl would know that. Uh, so no one would say, well, the sun will rise from the west, right? It, it's obvious. Everyone expects, you know, uh, next day that the sun will rise from the east. And this notion was applied to the Quran or the transmission of the Quran. Because if you prove that something is mutawatir, then you prove that it's absolutely correct that there's no way to dispute um, you know, its existence or its veracity. So the concept of tawatur, which was early on, was not used. There was no one in the early period said that the Qur'an was mutawatir. That's the later concept that was applied later on on the, on the Qur'an. Even people like Ibn Mujahid or Tabari, they never used this term to describe the Qur'an. It was used by the people of Usul al-Fiqh and theologians because you need the Qur'an uh, the Quran is the most important document in Islam. And you derive, you know, it's the first principle, you know, in, in Usul al-Fiqh, you, the, the first source. And if you don't have an authentic transmitted Quran uh, in all its details, then you have a problem. You have a problem from the premise. And therefore, the idea that the Quran is mutawatir, that it is transmitted uh, to all Muslims, that all Muslims know it in detail, and there's no way that people will conspire or collude on forging or falsifying or transmitting something uh, that is not in the Quran is impossible. Because when you prove something is mutawatir, 
then it is necessarily absolute. It imparts what we call imparts necessary knowledge. Alam daruri in usul al-fiqh. So, uh, so that's what we mean by tawadr. Uh, it's something that is transmitted or uh, by a large number of people that it is impossible for anyone to dispute its veracity and authenticity. And this concept was applied to the Quran, uh, I would say, um, with the late maybe 300s, 4th century, so probably 10th century. Um, and it just, you know, uh, continued in most works of, of theology and uh, specifically usul al-fiqh. How does this apply to the variant readings? Can we say that the variant readings um, are they mutawat? Well, this is the problem. The, the problem is that, you know, in, er, in early, uh, you know, in, in early works, the concept of tiraat were not explored vis-a-vis tawatur or vis-a-vis their transmission, right? So we are talking about the Quran, and that's why back to, you know, to, to, to go back to our definition of the Quran, um, when, you know, when scholars define the Quran as, you know, that revelation, inimitable Arabic revelation that the Prophet received, which is between the two covers, okay? So, so the essence of it, if you want, or the core, this is the core, this is the Quran. How you recite it and how you produce the different sounds of letters in that thing between the two cover, that was not part of the definition. Okay, but again, it is problematic um, because without that, and, and I emphasize all the time, you know, this, this concept, without variant readings, you cannot read the Quran. Okay, if you don't have variant, re- variant readings are the only way for anyone to read the Quran. You don't have, we don't have manuscript tradition or textual tradition in, in Arabic where early manuscripts of the Quran were transmitted to us fully voweled. All our printed editions of the Quran are based on one of those variant readings. If you remove the tradition of variant readings, you don't have any way of voweling the Quran. Okay, so this is why the variant readings are so important, because without them, you don't have access to the recitation. Well, sure, the variant readings, the seven or the ten, I would say they may agree on, I don't know, I don't have percentage, you know, the top of my head. So I would say maybe 50 percent, let's say, of, you know, common words, um, uh, common common, uh, pronunciation, you know, among those seven. But you still have a good chunk of 40% with different voweling, different principles of recitation, especially if you go really uh, technical into the different styles of recitation between one reciter and another, they are completely different. Um, so if you if you don't have those uh, principles of recitation from the discipline of qira'at, you cannot read the Qur'an. And then you would resort to textual criticism in the Western way, which doesn't apply to the Qur'an, because we transmitted the Qur'an orally, we memorized it orally, and when later on, you know, writing and printing uh, took place, uh, you started to write the Qur'an and you started to put vowels uh, based on the new invention of diacritics, okay? Um, so, so, so again, back to the whole relationship between tawatur and, uh, and qira'at, uh, the problem uh, was obvious for for scholars. How do you um, um, you know? How do you 
bring together the notion that the Quran is mutawatir, fine, this Quran which she wrote between the two covers is mutawatir. Uh, there are no additions. There are no omissions to it. Most Muslims agree to that, except for, you know, um, a few opinions here and there. But let's say the majority of Muslims agree that there are no additions or omissions to the text of the Quran. But then the next step is how do you read it and how do you perform it? Okay. Are those ways of different styles and recitations also mutawatira, also, you know, um, known to everyone? Um, are the seven readings or the ten readings of the Quran uh, as absolute and authentic as the sun is rising from the east? And the answer was obvious to everyone is no, it is not. Uh, because, again, we go back to early sources and we see that Muslim scholars rejected many of those readings and they did not consider them to be of any divine origin. Okay. Um, and, you know, when someone like, let's say, um, Ahmed bin Hanbal, who would say, well, I hate or I despise the reading of Hamza, Zayat, who's one of the seven canonical readers, or one muhaddith, let's see, uh, who would tell you, um, uh, if you pray behind Hamza, uh, then you have to repeat the prayer, which means that this reading or this style of recitation is bid'ah, is an innovation for them back then in the 300s. Okay, and the, and the late 200s. Um, and this is what the problem is. The problem is, are these uh, canonical, are these what now we call them canonical readings or qira'at, uh, were they mutawatira? And for early people, they realized that they were not. And then um, this is where the uh, intervention of, of hadith methodology, you know, uh, uh, took place. Uh, because if you prove that something has a sound chain of transmission, you are safe, right? So any hadith, even if it's transmitted by a single chain of transmission, um, as long as you prove that the chain of transmission is sound, then you are safe. You know, khalas, as we say, it's it's over. And therefore, you started to, uh, you shifted, you know, from... Um, uh, from the phenomena of the qira'at or the recitation of the Qur'an, which was a community practice uh, recited by people, you know, in their uh, local communities without chains of transmission into becoming heavily uh, dependent on chains of transmission. So you pick, you know, and this started with Ibn Mujahid even. He was, you know, between the two. Uh, you start picking those manuals of Qira'at, Ibn Mujahid and, you know, Ibn Mahran, let's say, and even later on with Adani and all these Qira'at scholars. And then you would find a, a chain of transmission which uh, connects you to those readers. And once you have a chain of transmission, then the Qira'at is authentic. But then many, you know, people objected to that. Well, okay, fine, you have a, a sound chain of transmission, but this doesn't mean that it is mutawatira. Because the two concepts are contradictory to one another. You can't have tawatur and a sound single chain of transmission. They are completely opposite. You can say that you have a sound chain of transmission, which means that, you know, your hadith is sahih or authentic, but it doesn't mean it is mutawatir. The, the criteria are completely different. And therefore, um, and I take always the example of Ibn al-Jazari, who uh, died in the 9th Hijri, right? So uh, 15th 
13th century, 1432, I think he died 1432, who at the beginning of his you know, career, um, he advocated for this concept. He said that the Qiraat, of course, they are mutawatira, they are part of the religion. Um, uh, he was going around in his writings, uh, even asking fatwas from uh, Tajuddin al-Subki uh, to uh, consider anyone who rejects the divinity and tawatur of the seven readings uh, to be a kafir and, and an unbeliever. But then 20 years later, you know, in his celebrated work, Al-Nashr Fil-Qira'at Al-Ashr, in his Muqaddimah, he said, well, back in my youth, I thought that the Qira'at were mutawatira, but I realized that they are not. They are just transmitted by single chains of transmission. Now, does that mean that they are less reliable? No, not necessarily. If you have a sound chain of transmission, then the content is authentic. But this is the difference between something which is authentic and something which is absolutely authentic or absolutely um, uh, validated through Tawatur. They are completely two different uh, criteria, at, at least according from the theological and usul al-faqah perspective. So that's the, uh, you know, the, the problem of Tawatur is that you can prove that the Quran as a text, as a consonantal text, that it is mutawatir, and that's the opinion of, of uh, most Muslims, um, um, the majority of them, uh, different, in, regardless of their uh, theological schools or sectarian uh, inclinations or, or legal uh, madhab. Uh, but when it comes to qira'a, that's the problem. And uh, the later opinion it still emphasized that the qira'at should be mutawatira because if the qira'at are not mutawatira, then what is mutawatir? And that's the, the problem. Again, I say, I say this again, if you don't have qira'at, if you don't have seven readings or ten readings, uh, you don't know how to vocalize the text, you don't know how to read it, you don't have any way of uh, knowing how the principles of recitation uh, operate uh, in the Quranic text. Uh, you, are, you are just left with, um, with a skeleton, uh, dead skeleton has no life, and we rely on those readings in order to instill life in this uh, skeletal uh, con- uh, consonant of the um, of the Osmanic Codex. What was the nature of transmission like between the Prophet and and the companions, and between the companions and each other? I mean, you have you have uh, some n- not many. You have like some accounts, okay that. Because of this problem, you know, they would even, you know, say that, sure, you know, even some of the companions, they did ard, uh, which means that they, they did an audition, they did um, review the, the Quran with the Prophet, and he, he, he certified them. And, you know, these these ahadith, um, if you take them from a historical perspective, you know, I, of course, I, cons- I myself co- consider them to be um, not accurate uh, because they are just a projection of what was happening, you know, in the first century or second century uh, back to an early period. You always want to create, you know, this kind of sound, um, a continuous chain of transmission from the prophet uh, to the um, to the readers. Uh, the, the problem is that we don't have information. We don't have information how the Prophet was uh, reciting the Quran. We don't even know what style of reading the, the Prophet, uh, you know, um, recited the Quran in. We only have, you know, some expressions or some phrases that, you know, وَكَانَتْ قِرَاءَتُهُ بِالتَّحْقِيقِ Which means, you know, his, he, he used to read slowly or he would, you know, um, you know uh, but, but that's it. We don't really have any description of uh, or uh, the modality in which he was uh, reciting the Quran. Um, also, an interesting uh, you know, feature is that 
we do have a corpus in the Islamic tradition which is called the Qira'at al-Nabi. We do have a, which which is considered, by the way, anomalous. I mean, imagine you know the the uh, the irony here. So you have you have sound accounts going back to the Prophet about variant readings in which he recited, but then the Islamic tradition considered those readings to be anomalous. Okay, um, why? For the same reasons we discussed before, well, those readings might have been Quran, but they were abrogated. Uh, they don't conform to the um, uh, to the uh, skeleton of the Osmanic uh, Codex, etc., uh, etc. Et uh, despite the fact that they were transmitted, and some of them are actually authentic accounts um, of uh, of his readings. Uh, so, you know. It doesn't, in, in a sense, it doesn't matter much, you know, what accounts we have on how the Prophet recited, because what matters is how the Muslim community um, agreed as a majority to transmit and recite the Quranic text, you see. Uh, so any accounts that, you know, tell us that the Prophet was sitting and he was just teaching the companions, you know, the Quran from beginning to end in seven different styles and that the Prophet was doing you know, idgham and mad and naql harakat al-hamza and imala and all this stuff, I really think they, they are, you know, complete, completely ahistorical. And uh, especially, especially when we study, you know, qira'at very closely, and we know that, uh, you know, starting, start, starting with the second century, the 200s, let's say, late 100s and early 200s uh, AD, uh, uh, sorry, Islamic calendar, uh, 800, 900 AD, uh, that many of the recitational styles uh, were developed during that period, and they cannot be traced back to an earlier period. We know that many readers, they developed their own style. We know that many, like someone like Hamza, why did people consider the reading of Hamza to be bid'ah, you know, to be an innovation? Because they probably never heard that before, and probably he came up with a style of recitation that, according to accounts that it was connected to some of the Salaf. However, other people didn't find it this way. Um, so again, this is the, the, the problem here is uh, having those uh, different accounts and trying to come up with a picture that makes sense. Because if you take all these um, accounts which have conflicting content, coming from different people, coming, you know, saying different things, you can't draw a, um, a comprehensive picture of what was happening during the time of the Prophet and, you know, 100 years uh, later. Um, and therefore, this is where, you know, our role is to try to sift through these different accounts, uh, see what uh, styles or what readings might have, you know, developed um, let's say, um, you know, with the reciters them, themselves and what reader, what readings or variant readings might have been traced back to an earlier period, whether to the prophet or the companions. That's something, unfortunately, because we don't have documentation in that period. And, you know, you only have hadith. So you only have to trust the hadith, um, uh, some of it, you know, or you have to rely on, on other methods. So I would prefer to rely on other methods because I don't trust a bit uh, any ahistorical hadith that tells me uh, that the Prophet was, I don't know, reading in Imala or assimilation or all these styles which were clearly developed uh, at a later stage. Thank you so much for that, Professor. So uh, it seems that we cannot say for sure that all recorded variants go back to the Prophet. 
And yet, despite this, we know that there were many, many recorded variants. People read, you know, in, in, in different ways, and different scholars thought, you know, X variant reading is not okay, which mm-hmm. another scholar thought maybe was. Mm-hmm. So, really, what does this tell us about the, the the nature of transmission of the Quran, and and how did people square this with the idea that the Quran is divinely preserved, maybe you know, word for word, or something like this? And was there any type of contradiction? Is this something that people wrote about um, and dealt with at all? Well, I mean, the whole idea of the preservation of the Quran, I think it's it, it was and is being mishandled, you know, by people from different groups. This idea that the Quran is preserved word for word, or you know, you know, haraka for haraka, you, you don't you don't find this kind of opinion in the in the classical sources. And people will always tell you, well, the Quran is preserved and, you know, inna nazdalna dhikra wa inna lahu lahafidun. It means, you know, it is, it is protected. Well, sure, but, you know, let us go, you know, to these sources and tell us what does it mean, preservation. So you go to, uh, you again, go to the any book of exegesis, go to Zamakhshari, go to Tabarit, go to Qurtubi, go to, uh, to any of those tafsir. And then they will never tell you that this verse means that the Quran is preserved word for word or haraka bar haraka or har bar har. They never say that. You know, all they say, well, the Quran is preserved from uh, omission and additions. It's preserved from the devils or the shayateen to add something to it. It's preserved that the shayateen would never take anything from it, right? So this whole notion that it is protected, you know, word by word, uh, it's something that is used, you know, you know, for the masses in a sense. Um, and it's not, you know, based on any academic research, academic, not necessarily Western academic. I'm just talking about even academic research by classical Muslim scholars, because they already knew that when you talk about uh, the Quran being preserved uh, word by word or haraka by haraka or etc., that we do have many mm, problems and inconsistencies in the tradition regarding those variant readings. So the the general consensus is that the Quran is preserved between the two covers. And that's the consensus of all people, of most Muslims. That's what we have preserved. It's preserved between the two covers. Now, how you render this text, okay, uh, of course, you have a group, uh, uh, um, you know, a large group which said, oh, well, even the, uh, the performance, the seven or ten readings, uh, they, are, they go back to the Prophet. Well, okay, fine, that's a nice theological idea, but then, you know, if we do more research on the topic, uh, do we reach this conclusion? And my conclusion is no, uh, because we do know that many, many uh, variant readings developed with time, and we can actually trace back when certain readings were circulating. Let's say, you know, some of the readings, we, we also do know that in those manuals of Qiraat, if people read them very closely, they would see that many of the uh, reciters, the canonical readers themselves, the seven, the ten, the rawis, uh, they don't read consistently over the time. They change their reading. They make mistakes. Uh, people tell them that, uh, you know, what you are reading is wrong. You should read this way. Um, uh, sometimes people read on their own uh, behalf. You know, take, for example, um, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, Hafs, right? Everyone, most Muslims now read um, Hafs on Asim. Right. And well, there's a Hafs is only reading on behalf of Asim. He's he's reading what his teacher taught him. This is a sound chain of transmission. So anything that Asim um, narrated, 
would be the teaching of, of Asim. Then we go to the manuals of Qira'at, let's say, and then uh, we would have, let's say, in a verse uh, which says, you know, Allahu ladhi khalaqakum min da'af, okay, which is with a fatha on the da'al. But then you read, وَقَرَأَ حَفْسَ عَنْ نَفْسِهِ Okay, so Hafs read on his own behalf. Like he he attributed this reading to himself. He didn't even say, well, I took it from Asim. Min da'af, with a dhamma on the da'af. Okay, so then you start questioning how often did readers do that to read a certain qira'ah uh, or a variant and attribute it to, to, to himself. So we are fortunate in this case that Hafs said that, you know, I read it on my own behalf and I didn't take it from Asim. But how many other instances we have that readers don't attribute this specific reading, you know, to themselves, especially when if you compare those seven or ten readings and you, you realize how unique each reader is. OK, um, so let's say you have the great assimilation technique Al-Kabir by Abu Amr. Was it something that the Prophet performed? So why was only Abu Amr out of all those ten readers who performed this technique? Let's say the imala, the A to E shift, which is performed, let's say, by Hamza and Al-Kisai, mostly. Uh, so why only Hamza? Kisai was more or less the student of, um, of Hamza. Uh, so why was only Hamza out of all those seven or ten readers who, perfor- who performed imala in, you know, other people performed imala, but not to the extent of Hamza, okay? Um, so then we start wondering about, you know, these uh, individual styles of people and why many Muslims objected to those styles. Many people objected to the reading of Ibn Amr, the, the, of Dimash. Many people objected to the reading of Hamza. Many people objected to the character of some of, the, of, those, uh, of those readers. And this is why Muslim scholars um, the, in the classical, classical period, and even you know, later on, they wouldn't tell you that the Quran is preserved you know, haraka by haraka or harf by harf. The Quran is preserved, okay? How you perform it and how you render it, you know, that's another theological issue uh, that has to do with the speech of God and kalamullah. Is it, you know, and this is why, you know, just a footnote, the, the Mu'tazila, in a sense, you know, they, you know, their opinion died out in a sense, but they solved the problem, not necessarily because of the variant, but for, for other things. They said, well, the Quran is created. It's hadith, right? And it means that even those, you know, it would even solve the problem of the different qira'at and different styles because you would not assume that God would also, you know, uh, recite the Qur'an in those different styles. You know, you know if, the, if the kalam is qadim and it, it doesn't change with time, so you would assume that God has only one mode of speech and not seven or ten different modes. And the Mu'tazira told you, oh, well, okay, well, this is why the Qur'an is created as makhluq. It solves at least, you know, one aspect of the problem. Um, so the preservation of the Quran, again, the question is, okay, so you say the preservation of the Quran, what do you mean by preservation? What do you mean by the word preserve? What do you mean by the Quran? And when we say about the preservation of the Quran, you're talking about that thing which is collected between the two covers. But by definition, you mean the Quran during the time of the Prophet was not collected between the two covers. So we are assuming something that didn't even exist during the time of the Prophet. If we believe that the Prophet didn't collect the Quran, there are scholars who say that the Prophet did collect the Quran. But let's go with the majority now and say that the Quran was collected during the time of Uthman. So you are saying that the Quran is preserved in in, in harf by harf, 
I mean, again, from an academic perspective, you are saying that the, you are saying that the Quran and the way that the Prophet received it, it's exactly matched to the way that we are doing our writing system, which is completely false, because you cannot represent the sounds in any language. You cannot represent the sounds, the intonation, the tones exactly in writing. So you are saying that everything in the Quran is preserved in the same way that the Prophet was reciting it, which is completely false. Uh, because you are saying it is, you can say that it is preserved in the way I recite it, but you cannot say it is preserved in the way it is written down. Because you could use Arabic to write it down, you could use transliteration, you could use any system. Especially when we know that the Arabic script was not developed at all during that time to represent exactly how the prophet was receiving those sounds or those words, you see? So so my the, the problem when we say preservation of the Quran, I, you know, we have to uh, dissect it a little bit to, to know what do we mean by preserve? What do you mean by Quran? Is it the recited or the written? And is there such a thing as a written Quran? Because the Quran by definition should not be a written, a written document and it should be a recited document. Um, so... Um, a footnote to that, I really don't think that the problems of interpretation in the Islamic tradition would really result from variant readings. I mean, take variant readings uh, alone, take variant readings uh, uh, to the side, uh, you know, differences in the Islamic tradition, whether it's in theology or in fiqh or, or anything, it's not the result of variant readings. So, uh, you, you know, uh, variant readings are not the cause of variations in legal verdicts or variations in theology or variation or sectarian variations, okay? Uh, so they are spices if you want, but they are not really the uh, the main reason for that. So I like, you know, a statement by Ibn al-Arabi, you know, the, the jurist uh, who was discussing, you know, the, you know, those variant readings um, uh, in one of his books. And, you know, he was of course, you know, not happy about the, the fact of, you know, those variations, Qumbul, Qalun, you know, what, what's what's this? And then he said, okay, fine, we do have these variations. Right, that's his conclusion. This doesn't change anything, you know, in the, of, of the foundations, you know, of, uh, of Islamic religion. And sometimes when I pray, I go, I use this style or I use that style of, of, uh, of recitation. Um, uh, so, yeah, so again, um, you know, I think uh, the whole matter of preservation of the Quran uh, as a concept, it's a, it's, it's um, uh, being used in, in a way that is not uh, accurate. Uh, you know, the question itself uh, is not accurate when you say, well, oh, the Quran is preserved. Okay, do you mean that it's preserved between the two covers? Um, there are no additions or omissions to it, you know, in that sense. Well, sure, everyone says that. There, we, we don't disagree on that. But then the problem is, is it preserved in the way it is recited? That's a question mark here, which um, Muslim scholars who know what they are, you know, talking about, you know, no one would say, well, it is preserved, um, you know, haraka by haraka or tashkil by tashkil, because they know it's, it's a very problematic you know, issue to just simply make a verdict uh, like this uh, so easily. So thank you so much for that. Um, Professor, before we kind of conclude on this topic of the variant uh, recitations and uh, 
Um, do you mind telling us what is what is shad? Uh, are the different types of shad and and how how what's a range of divergence between you know what's considered shad to what we have you know in our recitations today? Sure. So uh, shad, I think I um, I quickly um, talked about that earlier. Is shad is anything that is not canonical, right? By definition, so shad is uh, anomalous or irregular. Uh, it means that um, it deviates right from the consensus. That's by, by definition. Uh, shav is something that deviates uh, from the jama'a, from the group, from the majority or the consensus. So in the discipline of qira'at, uh, shav refers to the readings uh, which were not accepted by the Muslim community later on. And I say later on because there are many readings which uh, are now considered shawav, but in the early period, they were not considered shawav, right? So, um, so shawav have different, um, uh, there are different categories of shawav. So there is uh, a shawav reading which deviates uh, from the consonantal uh, outline of the Quran, right? So we have um, a word which is completely, has the complete opposite um, uh, rasm, the complete opposite, um, uh, you know, form. And that's by definition is shad. It doesn't agree with the uh, with the Quran. Uh, you have another type of shad. It agrees. You know, it's the same structure, the same shape. Okay. However, um, it's it's a reading uh, of you know that specific shape, which was not transmitted by um, authentic chains of transmission. Okay. Um, and this is also shav. So let's say I go back to my uh, the example I gave before about alhamdulillahi. So alhamdu is the systematic canonical reading of, of, of everyone. However, you have people who read uh, alhamda with a fatha, right? Um, so that would be shav uh, because um, it is transmitted uh, by um, unverified chains of transmission or by chains of transmission which were not considered to be a majority, you know, by the others. You have another, the first type, which I said it, it disagrees with the with the rasm. You have the reading by Hassan al-Basri, Hamdan lillahi. So he removed the alif lam from Hamdan and then he put a tanween on it. Now that's shav by definition because you remove the alif lam, the definite article, and therefore it deviates from the from the rasm. So uh, so shav, these are the two big you know categories of um, you know of shav. Um, again, the most important element I think is deviating from the consensus of the readers uh, at you know a later stage. Um, because again, we read earlier manuals of Qiraat, we read, we read earlier works, and we do realize that Muslims were actually reciting liturgically, not just using them in tafsir, uh, using what we now call shawal. So let's say Hassan al-Basri, they were people who were reading Hassan al-Basri in the second century, in the eighth century, and then they were certified also by that. Uh, there were people who were taking ijazas even, you know, cert you know certificates in certain uh, shawad readings, which we are now calling uh, shawad. Uh, even the Qira'a of Ibn Mas'ud, which you just you know referred to, uh, we also read in the sources that despite 
you know, the codification process by Osman and, you know, the, you know, the burning or destruction of all the other codices, uh, the reading of Ibn Mas'ud remained in Kufa for at least 100 something years. People were still reading according to the codex of Ibn Mas'ud in Kufa. And Al-A'mash, uh, who was one of the uh, readers in Kufa, um, he and his reading is considered to be Shadda, irregular or anomalous. Uh, he, you know, was the, um, uh, he inherited, let's say, you know, the Qira'a of Ibn Mas'ud. Uh, so that's, you know, sh- you know, the general definition of, uh, of Shad in, in the discipline. Thank you so much for that. I kind of want to move on to two very important questions. The first is, what do we mean when we talk about the inimitability of the Qur'an? Where does this concept first emerge and how have Muslim scholars and, and theologians dealt with this? Okay, so again, um, according according to different times and different you know groups of scholars, we have different uh, realizations of what Ijaz is. Okay, um, there are groups of people, you know, of scholar. Um, when I say people, I mean scholars. Okay, so um, uh, so there are there, there's a group of scholars uh, who would say, well, Ijaz. Uh, has to do with the hidden, you know, truths and facts in the Quran. It has to do with the tashri'ah, with, you know, uh, how it organizes society. Other groups say, well, it predicts the future. It tells us about, you know, the stories uh, of the ancients. Um, uh, you know, you have these modern theories about the mathematical ajaz in the Quran, etc., which has, you know, uh, I would say some seeds in, in earlier works when it talks about, you know, hidden truths or etc., However, that being said, um, uh, I don't want to say the majority here, but let's say I would say a mainstream uh, view of what Ijaz came to be is the literary uh, value of the Quran. Okay, uh, that it is uh, so eloquent and it is um, 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 so uh, beautiful uh, in its arrangement, uh, syntax, choice of words. Um, uh, brevity, even though it's, you know, uh, brief. Uh, however, uh, there are, you know, you can flesh out, you know, the verses uh, and the hidden, you know, meanings in those verses, even though it um, expresses, you know, those meanings in uh, very few words. So that's Ijaz al-Adabi, you know, or the literary value of the Quran uh, in terms of its uh, literary value. And, you know, again, there's a little bit of, you know, debate um, among scholars, classical scholars, about the whole challenge verses when, you know, the Prophet challenged the pagans of Mecca to um, produce something similar to the Qur'an or produce, um, you know, 10 chapters of the Qur'an or a chapter like the Qur'an. Uh, what does it mean? Does it mean that to produce something similar in style or does it mean to produce something similar in value or does it mean that, you know, they will just never be able to produce anything like this because God will prevent them from that. And that's what, you know, group of the Mu'tazila uh, called Asarfa means God prevented people, intervened and prevented people from even trying to emulate the Quran. Uh, so you have, let's say, back to mainstream. So you have a group saying that even the Quran cannot be emulated, uh, even on the on the surah level, uh, as short as you know Surah Al-Kawthar, let's say. Okay, even though it's short, um, no one can emulate the style. That being said, you have you know scholars like let's say Fakhreddin Al-Razi, 
uh, who would tell you that, uh, no, actually people can write something like Surat al-Kawfir. Uh, so what, mean, what we mean by Ajaz is the inability of people to produce something uh, on a massive scale, not necessarily one verse or two verses or three verses of the Quran, you see. Uh, so again, so there are people within the tradition who goes, who go extreme to say, well, similar to preservation, right? So the Quran is preserved down to the single letter, to the circle, fatha and kasra and dhamma. And also it is inimitable in every single word or in every single verse in it. And you have other people, you know, who studied also this matter in a more, I would say, uh, um, um, a practical, you know, way to say, well, wait a second, can we, can anyone produce something like Surah Al-Kawthar, which is, you know, three, three verses, straightforward. Uh, and he said, yes, right. And that's Fakhreddin al-Razi. We're not talking about just, you know, some unknown. Uh, so again, that's the <clears throat> the issue of inimitability here. Uh, it's not um, the the parameters of inimitability, let's say. To what extent the Quran is mu'jiz, um, you know, it uh, you know, I would actually go with the again with the with the notion that as a whole, as a book, uh, and not necessarily just we go after a, a short a short surah or a um, you know a short verse. Um, and how it is related to qiraat, um, we have I think there are two people, if I'm not mistaken, two or three who wrote uh, short manuals on even ajaz through the variant readings. Like the variant readings themselves uh, are. Uh, is a manifestation, you know, or man- manifested in, you know, uh, the theory of Ajaz. Um, so, again, different opinions uh, uh, regarding the literary value of uh, of the Quran. Uh, but I would say, again, the mainstream is that the literary, uh, the structure, the syntax of the Quran, uh, its literary value, um, it is, it's something that people, human Ins and jinn, people and jinn uh, cannot uh, emulate and cannot produce something uh, similar to. The final question is, how is the Qur'an related to poetry? Uh, Okay, so that's again a a very uh, complicated topic, which I'm I'm working on uh, recently, um, is the formal relationship between uh, Quran and uh, and poetry. Now, there has been a lot on Quran and poetry in terms of um, you know their uh, the source uh, from you know the source of revelation in Quran and the source of revelation in poetry uh, back in you know during the time of the Prophet. So um, you know the Quran uh, itself um, referred um, you know to the Prophet or refer to the pagans uh, in Mecca back then, that they accused the Prophet of being a poet, right? Um, also, they refer to him as being um, um, possessed by jinn, he's a poet, or he was a priest, or an oracle. Uh, but the most interesting of, of them is poet. So what did they mean that he was a poet? Um, and, you know, there's, you know, that's, traditional idea that, uh, you know, poets back then, probably some of them uh, were oracles. Uh, The early surahs of the Quran, they do resemble uh, poetry because they have, they use rhyme heavily. Um, They are very poetic in uh, poetic, I'm talking about modern uh, poetic imagery. Um, They are lyrical, 
you know, in, in, uh, in their structure. They almost follow a metrical pattern, almost, but, you know, not, not, not quiet. So in a sense that they really have some rhythm uh, to them. And therefore, that's uh, formulaic, if you want, resemblance between uh, Quran and, uh, and poetry. Um, however, when we talk about uh, relationship in terms of uh, knowledge or discipline, um, you know, it was made very clear from very early on that in order to understand the Quran, uh, you have to understand uh, Arabic poetry. And I, of course, you know, ascribe to this uh, notion. And um, uh, I do think that anyone who wants to understand uh, the Quran on a lexical level, I'm not talking now about the esoteric interpretation of it, if you really want to understand it on the uh, Zahir and what it says, uh, in what context you need uh, knowledge of uh, Arabic poetry because any book of tafsir you open uh, they always use the help of poetry uh, whether on the um, on the level of syntax or the level of uh, lexical words or grammar the only way the only way they used to interpret the Quran is through Arabic poetry and the regular speech of Arabs. And this is why Quran and poetry, uh, they are very intertwined. They are very important to one another. And in order to interpret the Quran correctly and even understand its, you know, uh, structure, repetition, for example, um, uh, what do we mean by its oral nature? Uh, why do we have rhythm, you know, uh, in the Quran? Why does rhythm change every now and then? Understanding Arabic poetry and the features and characteristics of Arabic poetry uh, is very important uh, to that. And no, no classical scholar now, unfortunately, some, you know, modern uh, scholars they would even say, well, you don't even need Arabic to, you know, to understand the Quran, which is very problematic. Uh, you know, to me, at least. So, but, you know, from the classical perspective, uh, I think anyone who wants to become an exegete or <clears throat> works on Quran, you have to have not just basic literacy of Arabic poetry, but what we what we call, uh, you know, asalib al-Arab, you know, how they use speech, how they use the words um, in the way they speak or in their prose or more more, partic- more particularly in, uh, in poetry itself. Understood. Thank you so much for that, Professor. And thank you for this super, super informative conversation. I'm, I'm very glad to have you on. And before before we conclude, I wanted to ask if there are any projects that you're currently working on, uh, recently completed projects that you'd like to tell the audience about. Oh, yeah. thank thank you uh, as well. I enjoyed uh, you know having this uh, conversation uh, with you. I um, uh, continued my work on Qiraat, my second book. Uh, it uh, should be coming out next month. It was supposed to come months ago, but unfortunately for the uh, you know recent uh, situation in the world, it was pushed back. Uh, so um, it's called the second canonization of the Quran, Ibn Mujahid and the founding of the seven readings. So it's a uh, um, a uh, detailed study on the Kitab al-Sab'ah by Ibn Mujahid. It studies, um, it's... It's just like a word by word study of the of the whole book, all the chains of transmission, everything that was said in the in the book. Um, plus, uh, I think I, hopefully that would be useful for uh, you know for people to 
you know, to read, you know, what we have to say about the transmission of Qira'at, but also read the variants themselves. So there will be a complete comprehensive table of all the variants collected from Ibn Mujahid at the end of the book uh, with audio material that will be open access to anyone. So you will just basically read and people will listen to the specific variants. So I hope that would be also very helpful. Uh, so that hopefully by next month, it should be maybe uh, end of uh, September, beginning of October, um, you know, it should be out. So uh, uh, I hope so. So we will see. Yeah. And with that, uh, I'd like to thank you once again and conclude this episode.